So what we're uh, doing uh, over, the, over, the, over the past few weeks is that we're taking some time to look at our liturgy. And uh, as many of you know, that if this is really any time you come to Ironworks, you're like, you notice that we have a, a, a formal scripted uh, worship service where there's this back and forth, this responsiveness. It's a, it's a very conversational tone. And that it can be surprising because a lot of churches don't have that. And so what we are simply doing is that we're each week we're looking at one idea, one aspect of our worship, and and, and trying to give some clarity to to you to one understand why we worship the way we do, but also to understand that how we worship is is formative. How we worship actually shapes us into a, a new people. And as we are followers of Jesus, this means that we are uh, being made into a new people who follow. God for the good of our neighbors. And so today what we're doing is that we're specifically considering why it is that we listen to a sermon. That's really the big question. And so the premise of this is that uh, the reality is that we are a storied people of God. And so um, if you we, also, as our bulletin shrunk, this also means the scripture is not in the bulletin. Our, we have Bibles, and so just letting you know that uh, that uh, if you would like to have a Bible, they're on the table in the back, and we'll have the page number printed for you in the worship guide. And so today we're we'll we're looking at Luke chapter twenty-four, verses uh, uh, thirteen through thirty-five, uh, and you can follow along in um, in Scripture, or you can follow along on the words projected behind me. And so let's give our careful attention to reading God's word. This is Luke chapter four, uh, twenty-four. Verses 13 through 35. Here's God's, here is God's word. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were t- talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, turned, one of them named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of these who... Sorry, lost my place. Vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it, just as the woman had said. But him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets, all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if 
he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it, and broke it, and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let me pray for us one more time. Father, we thank you for your word, and we ask now that you would be with us as we consider your word. May your word uh, be clear to us. May your spirit be working in our hearts that we would uh, know your word, but not just know your word, that we would know your son, Jesus Christ, in whom we have life. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Here's a question uh, for you. It's a question that we want to begin with. But what is the Bible? What is the Bible? There's a lot of competing answers to, to that question. Like, uh, there are a lot of competing answers to that question. Some say that the Bible is really a, a list of do's and don'ts. don'ts. It's a book of commands. It, it tells you how to live and tells you how not to live. And religious people often see the Bible in, in that way. That's a list of do's and don'ts. And another answer is that the Bible is really a, a collection of character studies. In fact, there's a... a a hymn that's entitled Dare to be a Daniel. And so the idea of, of the character studies is that it really, again, is a picture of how to live and how not to live. And so if you look at scripture that way, you're like, oh, I need to become more like David, or I need to become more like Mary instead of Martha, and, and so forth and so on. And also, like, there's this idea that um, in Scripture, you can look at Scripture and you can look at the Bible and say, hey, this is a book of ideas, a book of doctrine, and that's all it is. And so what we heard about in the call to confession, Jesus is looking at the Pharisees and, and uh, judging them. And in fact, he's judging them for how they look at Scripture. He says that you are looking at Scripture, looking to it and trying and, and really looking at Scripture and saying, hey, I have life in Scripture. But the truth is, we don't have life in Scripture. And that's what Jesus was saying. Is that you guys, he's saying to the scholars, he's saying to the religious leaders, he's saying to the scribes, the people who know the, the Scriptures inside and out, he's like, you guys have missed the entire point. Because you have missed the fact that Scripture is about me. And fundamentally, Scripture is about Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, Scripture is a story about Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a huge thing, and that's really what the reality that we need to consider, that Scripture is a story about Jesus. And uh, this is actually something that we miss pretty, pretty often. And for example, Leslie Newbegin was a missionary to India during the mid-20th century. And Leslie Newbegin... Um, he, he's a fascinating writer and scholar and a missionary. And he shares this one story. And this is a true story. A religious scholar, a Hindu religious scholar comes to him and says this. I cannot understand why you missionaries present the Bible to us in India as a book of religion. It's not a book of religion. And anyway, we have plenty 
religious books in India anyways. We don't need any more. And I find in your Bible, I find in your Bible a unique interpretation of creation and the history of the human race. And therefore, a unique interpretation of the human person as a responsible actor in history. That's unique. There's nothing else in the whole religious literature of the world to put alongside it. So here is a Hindu religious scholar. He's looking at the Bible. He's saying this is the most unique book that has ever been given, ever been written or anything like that. And so fundamentally, he, this scholar is seeing the Bible to be a story of human history, a story of creation. And, and within that, as we know, that the Bible is a story of how... Of, it's a story of good news. It's a story of the gospel, of, of how God created people, places, and things, and, and how God is restoring all those things to himself, how God is renewing all things to himself. And so as we look at this text, as we look at this scripture, here's the big idea that we must consider today. And the big idea is this, is that if you are not living in God's story, then you are living in a different story. If you are not living in God's story, then you're living in a different story. And so how, the first point as we lean, lean into this text, the first idea that I want us to think about is the power and the disappointment of our stories. The power and the, the disappointment of our stories. And we, uh, we see the power of these two disciples' stories pretty clearly for us. We see it in their own words, as they say in verse 21, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And right there, uh, that the word redeem is a loaded theological word. And it's, it's a word that is very quickly understood within the Jewish mind. But there are also different Jewish interpretations of what that meant. And one example is like the zealot in, um, understanding of redeem. And these two disciples uh, were zealots. Uh, and so the Jewish zealots believed that God's anointed one, in other words, God's Messiah, would come and redeem Israel from Roman rule. What, the, what, what that explicitly means is this, is that Jesus is a political revolutionary who came to restore Israel's kingdom and by defeating all of Israel's enemies. So by coming and kicking the Romans out of Israel, by coming and kicking all the uh, uh, collaborators out, the Herodians, uh, the, the tax collectors out of Israel, and restoring uh, Israel's might. And it would be like Israel under King David that you would find in the Old Testament. And so that is how these two disciples looked at Jesus. That is whom they expected him to be like. They expected Jesus to be a political revolutionary who would rescue Israel from their physical circumstances. That is the story that these two disciples lived by. That is the story that really defined their lives. But where these two disciples are at, as they're going to, on the, as they're going to Emmaus, uh, um, 
And, and the, the one other thing to know about Emmaus is that Emmaus is really essentially a city where zealots lived. It was a city that had a very popular zealot ideology. And so they're going there to, because, to really find comfort uh, among other zealots. And so, but as they're going there, like we can see and hear their disappointment as these two disciples share their disappointment with Jesus. We had hoped. So instead of the Jewish people rallying around Jesus and, say, and saying, yes, let's kick all the Romans out, he, the Jews actually do the complete opposite. The Pharisees come, come to, to really Pilate and say, hey, we want you to put this guy to death. So the Pharisees are actually collaborating with the Romans at this time. And they're saying as they're putting uh, Jesus to death, these these. The Jews are saying, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so th these disciples are leaving Jerusalem. They're leaving the events of the past three days. And really, disappoint their hearts are disappointed. And their hearts are disappointed. They are disappointed because the, their story has great power over their lives. They are zealots and but fundamentally, the reason why they are disappointed is because they had a very low view of Jesus. They followed Jesus throughout Jesus' life. In fact, zealots would be willing to die for Jesus, in fact. They would be willing to die for their Messiah. But the fact is, they're the one that they looked to, the one that they hoped would defeat Rome, is dead. And, but here's how they had a low view of Jesus. They only expected the Messiah to change their circumstances. These two disciples only expected Jesus to change their circumstances. That they would rescue, that the Messiah would rescue them from their circumstances. And this is shocking to us. These are two disciples who follow Jesus. These are disciples who know Peter, James, and John. They, they know where they are at. They, at the end of this passage, they run back to the, the 11 and the, the rest of the disciples. And so this is surprising to us because they follow Jesus. They, they know Jesus' best friends. They are privy to even some of the, the private conversations that Jesus would have with his disciples. So how in the world could they have missed this? Like, they, they have missed the entire story of God. They, have, they are blind to the message of Scripture. They are blind. And again, the reason why they have missed the entire story is because they are, in fact, living by a different story. They are living according to a competing story. And this is true for us. We all have our own stories. We, we're natural storytellers, and our world pressures us, in fact, to live by various stories. We can just look at our workplace. We can look at our family. We, we, we know that our world is telling us to live by different stories. And so the question is, what story are you living under? What stories are you living under? What stories are forming you and shaping you? Uh, and here's just one example from, from my own life. And, and it, it, happens, it happened two years ago. So two years ago, I was uh, deep in fundraising mode for Ironworks Church. And I, there's, I had this opportunity to apply for a grant uh, as one donor wanted to give, uh, wanted to support six 
projects within churches to really empower discipleship and prayer life and evangelism and, and uh, scripture engagement and, and a lot more. And so this one donor went to support six works. And so uh, I responded to this, uh, ba- this invitation to apply for this grant. And this grant would be $50,000 over either one year or three years, which is amazing, incredible generosity on this individual's part. And, but like as I look at the grant proposal, I'm looking at it and, so, and I'm like, oh, I, have to t- I have to basically say how many people are going to be praying each quarter. And, and so, in other words, like, and it's very clear that the, the grant is like, so say in the spring, we want to ha- see like 20 people in your church praying. And in the summer, we want to see 40 people. In the fall, we want to see 60 people. And then next year, we want to see 100 more people praying. And all of a sudden, like, I just feel like this immense pressure just to, to completely like make up numbers. So like, I don't know how many people are going to be praying next year. I know like... Like, I know the sin of my own life. I know, like, how inconsistent it is, how easy it is to not follow Jesus Christ, and how easy it is to really struggle with Scripture reading and prayer and, and community life and sharing our faith. Like, it's easy. It's, it's, in fact, not easy. It's complete. It's the opposite of easy. It's hard. And so in this moment, it's just like the story that I'm being faced with is the story that I know some of you also face. As you also apply for grants to, from the government or uh, apply for grants for your academic study and, and more. And the story that I'm being formed by in that moment, this, it's pretty obvious that in the story that I'm being told is that Robbie Schmipperger must produce results. I am created to produce results. But... I fall short of that standard. That's, that's the reality. And I know that, but the story that I'm being formed by in that moment and applying for a grant is like, just try harder, do a, do a better job, just get more people and so forth and so on. And so the hero of that story in that moment is that is myself. That if I'm able to get that grant, then I am the hero of the story. And that, friends, is a, is, a st- is a similar story that we face, every single one of you face on a daily basis. The circumstances might be different, but the story of the stories that our world and our culture and even our sinful selves is telling us is that you, that we are the hero of our own stories. And that is incredibly, that's awful news. And so even as just rehearsing that story, that I, I just gave to you. Like, I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about religious, like, I'm talking about good, godly things to do. And so here's the question that just exposes the, the, the real silliness of it. Where in the world is the Holy Spirit? Like, it's the Holy Spirit who's alive and working in us and changing us and making us into a new people. Where's the Holy Spirit working in us? And, and, and so in my story that I just gave, and the story that I'm looking at here at Luke 24, the, the, all Jesus is, well, the most important thing about the story I gave, the story here, Jesus is not the hero according to us. Jesus is not the hero. At best, Jesus is the one who rescues us from circumstances. That's it. And that's deceptive. That's hollow. That's empty. There's no hope in that. 
And authors Paul David Tripp and Tim Lane, they rightly identify how so when they write this, that when Jesus is only the hero that rescues us from our circumstances, what it misses is my need for Jesus' redeeming grace and places the blame for my sin at God's doorstep. We blame God for the problem person or problem circumstance that we have in life. We question God's wisdom. We question God's goodness. We question God's character. So the grace of God is never sought out or nor received. And so that's all Jesus is to these two disciples, that Jesus is the the one who would rescue them from their circumstances. And they discovered how empty their story was because like they are they discover that their story the story of their life disappointed them but in that disappointment we actually discover something in their disappointment we discover something about the true story of the world we discover the wonderful good news of God's story and this is the second to today, the, the wonderful good news of God's story. And it's, it's in verse 21. They say, we had hoped that he would be the one who would redeem Israel. Let's just pause right there. That word redeem, like I said, is a loaded word. What does it mean? It's not what the zealot, the Jewish zealots understood, but what does it mean? And redeem is simply the verb form of redemption. And that's not really a language that we use that often. In fact, like, can you think about your own language and how you use English? Like, how do you, in any other circumstance outside of church, do you use the word redemption or redeem? If you do, you got an amazing score in your SATs. But, like, the only place, the only place that you find it is on top of a coupon. It's like redeemed by such and such. And like some of you got that. So your SAT scores were higher than mine. But um, so specifically to redeem means to buy back. To buy back. So rescue is actually a pretty close word. But rescue from what? To buy back from what? And when we look at scripture, we have incredible examples of, of liberation and rescue and redemption. Like look at the Old Testament. Israel is enslaved to Egypt, and God redeems Israel, rescues Israel from their physical slavery. And what we find in the New Testament is that that entire understanding of Exodus is how we are meant to think about our understanding of our life, that we are enslaved to sin. We're not enslaved to Pharaoh, but we are instead, it's a spiritual slavery. We are enslaved to sin. We, that's a reality. And like, so like Israel, as Israel needed a, a redeemer, a rescuer, a deliverer supply God, that God gives through Moses, our redeemer, deliverer is Jesus. That it, Jesus, in other words, is the hero of our stories. And we see that in these disciples' disappointment. They just misunderstood. They had the wrong expectations of who Jesus is. And Jesus is the one who came to, he came to redeem Israel. They were right, but they were wrong because they did not understand what, what that means. And so the reality is, like, like going back to the fact that we are enslaved by sin, we need to have a big understanding of, of sin, that like sin is 
is that this is uh, sin impacts everything. Sin truly impacts everything. It's like we are. It impacts us personally, individually. It, it impacts our life with God. It impacts our life and relationships with one another. And we see that through all our conflict and, and frustrations with friends and family. Or we even look at our work in our, in our society, in our world. We see sin impacting our world in systemic ways, in institutional ways. Like we need to have a big understanding of sin. And the reality is we need to have a bigger understanding of Jesus. Because Jesus defeats sin. Jesus defeats death. Jesus defeats the evil one. And so while it's true that sin has great power in our lives, Jesus is greater. Jesus has more power in our lives. And let me just give two examples of this. Growing up, I had... Um, one, one teacher, and I went to a, a small uh, Christian school, so cr- our teachers talk this way. But I had one teacher who would sh- share that in his family, if you look at his family, go back generation after generation after generation. Uh, in fact, he, like go back four generations, he, you, you would see alcoholism after alcoholism after alcoholism. Like his entire family lineage is full of alcoholics. And he said, I don't want to pass that legacy on to my kids. I don't. And so he's like, I'm never going to touch this stuff. I'm never going to drink beer. I'm never going to drink uh, uh, any liquor, spirits, wine, anything. Champagne, nope, none, nada. Not going to touch it because I want to have a different, I want my kids to have a different legacy. And so he, bas- so he leaned into this. And then an- another friend, a pastor who I worked with in Pittsburgh, uh, he would g- tell a similar story. But instead of alcoholism, it had to do with divorce. That you look at his family, his mom and dad, and you g- and look at his mom's family, there's three generations of divor- divorce. You look at his dad's family, there's four, uh, three or four generations of divorce. And so he's like, I want my kids to have a different legacy. I want my marriage to be different than my parents' marriage. And so the reality is that what both of these men are telling, telling me and teaching me is that Jesus frees us to be different. That Jesus frees us from the power of sin. That, and, and Jesus is bigger than our sin. That is the picture that we have within all of Scripture. And so in both of these examples that I just gave to you, You can see that sin has generational uh, power, that sin impacts generation after generation after generation. But we also find this within Scripture, that uh, it's in the book of Exodus that we find that, like, uh, if one is faithful to God, God's grace is given to generations, thousands of generations after him. And it's in Exodus 20. And so, like, what we find right there is that God's grace, God's kindness is greater than sin. And so like, but however, if I just pause, if that's all the stories of these two individuals are, it can actually sound quite moralistic. Hey, just try harder, harder to be a good husband. Oh, just try harder to be a good father. Or just try harder. Like that, if I just stop right there, that's all the, the stories that these two men are, are, are passing on. But that's not the case whatsoever. Knowing these two men quite well, I know this is what they are saying. That they're saying that I can only be a good father with God's help. I can only be a good husband with God's help. That I am, as we heard earlier, and like this, this, there's this little clause in our vows of membership, that humbly reliant upon God's grace. That this is what they're saying, that I am humbly reliant on God's grace. That the I am only able 
to be a good husband because Christ is a good husband to me. That Christ is the one who died upon the cross, who gave himself for me. That we are only able to be good fathers because God has, is the perfect father to us. And so like what I know these two men are saying is that, it, that all their efforts is completely dependent and founded upon God's grace. And so even this is what they would say, is that I will be a good father with God's help. With God's help, I will be a good, be a good husband. And, and the truth is, this is what it, is, it means for us, is that Jesus is the hero of our stories. And, but we cannot truly experience the transformation and the healing that we have in Christ without first coming to God and admitting that the complete bankruptness of, our, of all our good works. And this is actually how one writer, Tim Keller, how he put it. He said this, that your freedom and your power are directly proportional to how much you are willing to admit that you are a slave and a sinner. Your joy and your glory and your greatness are directly proportional to how willing you are to see the profundity of your need for redemption. In other words, that if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, then you need to confess and repent of your sin. And when you are vulnerable, when you are honest, when you are genuine about your life, that's when God's power is going to be seen most clearly in you. That if you want to grow and change, then you must first admit that you can't change. That it's beyond you. That you can only change with God's help, with the Holy Spirit living and working within you. Because it's the Holy Spirit that enables you to change. See, when we embrace Jesus as our Lord, we are, we are embracing everything that he has done for us on the cross. We are embracing and saying that, like, you know what? It's not by my good works or my righteousness or my religiosity that enables me to have life with God. I'm actually unable to have life with God. It's only because I'm only able to have life with God because of what Jesus has done for me. And when we do that, we're actually embracing this amazing story, this good story of God as our own. We're embracing a bigger story for our lives. And as we embrace God's story, that is actually an invitation for us to live and participate in God's story. And so this is our third, our third idea that we want to think about, that you can make God's story your own. And if you're going to make God's story your own, then we first need to look at our life. We need to look at our lives through the lens of a bigger story. We need to look at our lives with the lens of a bigger story. Because you and I are not the heroes of our story. Jesus is the hero of our stories. And what we find from all of Scripture is that Jesus is working in, in this world, renewing all things to himself. He's restoring people to himself, places to himself, things to himself. God, he is, Jesus is truly the creator of the universe who sustains it and redeems it and brings everything to buy back and rescue and liberate everything back to himself. That's an, that's an, amazing, that's an amazing story. And, but here's what we do. When, when we hear that Jesus is our Redeemer, when we hear that Jesus is our Savior, we often do two things with that information. 
we do two things with that information. We say, yes, Jesus freed me from sin. Jesus freed me from, I'll put it this way, the penalty of sin. So in other words, Jesus did something for your past life. So we can think about this in this way. That if, if someone says to you, hey, uh, how did you come to faith? Can you share your quote-unquote testimony? Really just Christians use that word to share a story of how God has worked in your life. And so what, but the, the default answer to that is like, the default answer to that is that, oh, a testimony is how Jesus worked in my life years ago. It's how Jesus did something for you in the past. So that's one thing we can do with the information that Jesus is our Savior. The second thing that we can do is that, oh, Jesus is going to save us, save me from the presence of sin in this life. But that's when he's going to come again or when I die or one of those th two things. The, so, but all, all of a sudden, when, but what, here's what we do with that. We completely skip now. What does Jesus, what is Jesus doing in our life today? There, Jesus is doing something in your life today, in this very moment. Jesus, in fact, is changing you today. He is transforming you today. And the, this, is, this reality is, is seen all throughout the Old Testament. When Paul, who wrote, who wrote the majority of the New Testament, he says, you know what, you are dead to sin and you are alive to Christ. You know, the old is gone, the new has come. You are, in fact, a new creation. Your life today can be a picture of that re restorative, that renewing work that Jesus is doing in this world, that we are able to live differently. And that's all because Jesus is the hero of our story, and he is working in you today. And this, this is incredible because this brings us a, a new perspective to our life, not only that, Jesus brings you joy. He wants you to have joy today. Jesus wants you to have freedom today. Jesus wants you to have truth today. Jesus wants you to have a family today. And Jesus does all this because he brings you God himself. And so there are three things that this means. There are three things that this means. And first, the first, and like I want to look at the story to, to see this. The first thing to, to point out is that, is that these two disciples have an encounter with Jesus in a very specific way. And this encounter wakes them up to the bigger story of God. These two disciples are together. They're confused. They're distraught. They're disappointed. And Jesus shows up to them. Jesus shows up to them. And I don't want to overlook that insight. Because Jesus shows up when we are together. Jesus shows up when we are together. So the church, in other words, is a gift to you. The church is a gift to you. If you are here today and you have doubts and you skepticism, the church is a gift. You're meant to air your questions and doubts and, and think out loud, and there is no condemnation for that. We're not, there's no judgment for that. In fact, uh, the church, if you're here today and you're struggling with guilt and shame, the, the same is true. The church is a gift to you. We are meant to lift you up in, in prayer and to walk with you and to carry your burdens with one. We need to carry one another's burdens. We're told this in James, that when you confess your sins to, a, to one another, you will be heal, healed. And so the first thing that we need to look at, to really take home, is that Jesus shows up when we are together. That is a major reality. And so the community, a family life, is important for us as followers of Jesus. 
And so the second thing is that God's story brings a level of clarity to our lives that we have never known before. Look at these two disciples again. They knew Jesus. They walked with Jesus like, for quite some time. And, yet, and as Jesus is opening Scripture, beginning with the Moses and the prophets and all the writing, as Jesus is opening Scripture, um, and then he leaves, this is what they say in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened the Scriptures to us? So like what they're saying is that all afternoon our, our, something has been going on in our hearts, and we have really known it to be true. How did we miss this? And so God's story brings a new level of clarity to our stories. And so when we understand that our life through the lens of God's story, we find that we have purpose and significance and value, and, and it's all because we are God's beloved people. Then lastly, here's the third thing. And so the reality is that Jesus died to save you from the power of sin today. Je- Jesus wants you to live differently now. God wants you to live differently now. And so what God, the Father and the Son do is they send the Holy Spirit to live and dwell within you and to empower you so that you can live differently. So what this means is that if you know God, then here's the question that you need to ask and consider. If you know God, what has changed in your life because of Jesus? What has changed in your life because of Jesus? And I'm just going to point out, change this past tense. I also want to offer this question to you as well. What is changing in your life because of Jesus? Because Jesus is concerned about how you live today, not how you lived yesterday, not only how, how you're living tomorrow and in the years that come, but how you're living today. And when we look to Jesus as the hero of our story, he saved you from the penalty of sin. He saved you from the... He will save you from the presence of sin, and he is saving you from the power of sin today. So what does that look like in your life? Let's pray. Father, we thank you.